A warning for listeners. This episode contains mature themes. We want to bring you some important late-breaking news. We're being told that there is a lockdown and an active shooter situation at Robb Elementary School, which is in Uvalde. I can tell you, Deb and Audrey, I know these communities very well in these surrounding counties out here, and they're very tight-knit communities, and I've seen many officers visually upset up here today. I mean, Vanessa, when you say upset, were these officers crying? Visibly upset, yes. I, I, I would say yes. Yes. Uh, We're talking about a total of 15, maybe 16 people being hit. Also, possibly people getting hurt while they were trying to evacuate uh, after sheltering in place. We can now confirm, right now we have just learned that, from Uvalde Memorial Hospital. 13 children injured, uh, being treated, but two people are dead. And as for the 66-year-old woman that Tim just told us about, in critical condition, so we do expect updates throughout the day on all of the injuries, but right now we can confirm at least two students dead in the aftermath of the shooting. I am Archbishop Gustavo Garcia Siller, missionary of the Holy Spirit. I'm the Archbishop of the local church of San Antonio, Texas. That day I was having a full day gathering with all the priests of the Archdiocese of San Antonio. And being in that gathering, I received in my phone that two children were killed in a school in Uvalde. So I communicated that to to the brothers and two priests immediately who live in that area left. And then I say a prayer and, and I left for Uvalde. The visit was directly to the hospital. I remember that inside of the hospital, one family, one father with two kids was coming out from a meeting room and he knew that his child was dead and he couldn't talk about it at all. From there, being with the families, we went to the civic center. In that place, there were families outside on the garden by themselves, like groups. They were waiting to be told. I went to the room and I was able to visit with the families, but they were silent. Some they were with their heads on the table. They were not speaking to each other. It was very, very, very difficult moment to describe. And then I decided to have to schedule masses every evening during that week. 
I mention that because the Eucharist, the celebration of the Eucharist, gives so much for the many different levels of the state of mind, or even spiritually. The Mass offers the possibility of an encounter with God and with one another. All those days, the Masses were pretty full, which means that it was answering a need of the people. And that Mass I call children of that age, 10, 11 years old, to come forward to the altar. And I was, with my back to the congregation, trying to connect with them. And I couldn't. I couldn't. And I was... Uh, they were like shattered. Uh, just, just there. You know? And so... I remember that I began a few months earlier to study sign language. So I began to sign to them few things that eventually they were answering to me in sign language. For example, do you want peace? So what do you want? And they were mimicking. But it was connection. And I think that is so important in situations of violence that there will be real connections. And to see how they read the situation is when you touch violence in the flesh of the people. And then a few days later, there were another two shootings of gang members in Javali. Idol is when I make something that is not sacred, sacred, and is expressed in the attachment that I have to it. By October 2022, more than 500 mass shootings had occurred in the United States. And those traumatic events account for only a fraction of the gun violence plaguing the nation. But they also unsettle the consciences of millions of people. And in an election year, that can catapult the question of gun laws and policies to the top of a voter's priorities. From America Media, I'm Sebastian Gomes, and this is Voting Catholic a podcast about what's at stake in the 2022 midterm elections from the people who know the issues best and bring their faith to the voting booth. In this episode, I'm speaking to Patrick McCormick. He's a professor of religious studies at Gonzaga University, specializing in Christian and medical ethics and Catholic social teachings. We explore the data and the potential policy questions related to guns, but we'll also look at guns particularly an attachment to guns, from a deeper theological and spiritual perspective. At the time that we're recording this, Pat, it's, it's mid-September. There have been more than 32,000 gun-related deaths, including over 17,000 suicides in 2022 so far. 
That has included 493 mass shootings, which is defined as four or more people injured or killed, not including the shooter in a single incident. We know there's no one cause for this. There's a lot of growing social and political unrest in the country. There's a lot of polarization. There's a lot of stress from the coronavirus pandemic. Um, They're fraying institutional bonds. I'm thinking, for example, with law enforcement. And you have a huge number of guns in America to top it off. And I know it's really difficult to find a connecting thread. So if we're just trying to set the stage here and wrap our heads around this question of guns and gun violence in America today, ahead of the 2022 midterm elections, what can we say? Well, you've said a lot of the things that are that are relevant here, but there are two phenomena that sort of um, shape our present context. One is that there's been a rising uh, purchase of guns over the last couple of years. So we've added about 40 million guns uh, to American households in the last couple of years. The other piece uh, is that when we look not just according to the changes in time, but our relationship to other comparable nations, we see that Americans are able to buy guns in ways that most people in other advanced or highly developed nations that would be comparable to us are not able to do that. And we see that the rates of gun deaths in our country, particularly the rates of gun homicide in our country, are higher by a large percentage than they are in advanced European nations. So right now we're in a situation that's different from the recent past, and we're in a situation that's different from our contemporary uh, democratic societies. So one of the things I think we have to look at is how people um, are driven to purchase guns and how useful it is to set limits on people's ability to bring guns into their households. I want to talk about the pandemic, specifically the COVID-19 pandemic, um, which happened around the same time as we've seen this huge increase in the numbers that, that you mentioned. What can we say about how Americans processed and went through the pandemic? And why does that seem to be connected to this increase in gun purchases and gun ownership? I think that there would be good reason to think that the COVID epidemic has affected us as a society by making us feel more isolated and disconnected from one another, and that we've had an experience of increased powerlessness and loneliness and frustration. I also want to suggest that the last couple of years of COVID, where we've seen these increases, these sharper increases, also fit into a longer pattern where we've had increases in suicide and gun homicides since around 2010. And that corresponds uh, to the growth of what some scholars have called death by despair. And that is certainly since the 2008 recession, particularly middle-class white males in the United States and, and a growing number of white females have had increased rates of death from suicide and from opioid use and from liver damage. And so these deaths by despair 
look like they're concentrated particularly among folks who have not um, been able to secure uh, university education and have run higher risks of unemployment. So it looks like economic factors are also playing into the increase of people turning to gun suicide and to gun homicide, and that that's been concentrated during the past couple of years of COVID when people have felt increasingly alienated from one another. Uh, And so the sadness or frustration or anger, which was simmering because of these other causes, has been on the increase during the time of COVID and could explain a, a good deal of the fear that's driven people to go out and purchase guns so that they might have a sense of power or a sense of safety. And it might be behind some of the rage that's causing people to turn to guns more often um, in gun shootings and gun homicides. I want to touch on something you just mentioned there briefly at the end. When we see this kind of social, political unrest, growing anger, economic challenges, there's a lot to deal with. Do we know why Americans seem to turn to gun ownership in those moments of crisis? I don't know that we fully know the answer to that question, but I have a couple of thoughts that I'd share, admitting the imperfection of my suggestions here. One of the things is that it looks like there's been a a relatively longstanding myth in American culture that Americans have a special relationship to guns and that that comes from the American Revolution, the time on the frontier, the settling of the West, all of these kinds of things and that uh, gun ownership is identified with a kind of rugged uh, individualism that evaluators of American society since de Tocqueville have said are kind of endemic in American culture. But recent studies have indicated that Americans actually didn't own guns in very high numbers in the 18th and early part of the 19th century for a variety of different reasons, and that um, when Gun manufacturers switched from being gunsmiths in the first half of the 19th century. That One of the things that they ran into was that these gun manufacturers like Smith & Wesson and Colt and others sought contracts with the government or with the military so they'd be able to sell thousands of guns to them. But war is an inconstant customer. And so these corporations needed to be able to, to sell guns to a civilian market Uh, in times of peace so that they could keep their factories open. And so they invented a number of strategies that anybody in business would have developed in order to be able to sell their product at a steady flow and so as not to have to foreclose their factories uh, in times of peace. And one of the strategies that they developed was to begin to develop this sort of mythology of the American West. And just as people at the end of the 19th century were starting to need guns less and less as they settled more and more in urban areas, the marketing strategies of a lot of these major gun producers shifted so that the gun became a kind of iconic symbol of our connection to the past. And it began to take on an emotional value or a spiritual value or a moral identity that it had not had in the 18th and 19th century. One of those strategies in particular uh, in the early part of the 20th century was targeted on boys. And the idea was that manhood could be passed on to our sons by giving them a gun. 
So I think a good deal of, of our kind of mythology of American exceptionalism or attachment to guns is the result of really effective and successful marketing strategies from gun producers in the United States. Pat, I want to ask you, who is this affecting mostly? Um, there are a lot of different people who are buying guns. There are a lot of different people who are the victims of gun violence. But what do we know about who those people are, where they come from, what communities they belong to? So at the present time, and for a long time, most of the people who die from guns in the United States are suicide victims. Five years ago, uh, there were about twice as many gun suicides in the United States as there were gun homicides. At the present time, it's more like 54% gun suicides and 43% gun homicides, which means the first thing we know about these people is that they're gun owners. That is, the vast majority of people who die from guns are people who have guns in their own home. What we also know is that with suicides, although women attempt suicide at a much higher rate than men, men overwhelmingly choose guns to commit suicide. And so the result is that, that men in the United States are four times as likely to die of suicide from a gun than women are to die of suicide. And we know also overwhelmingly that the vast majority of these men who take their lives with guns are white. And we know that they are largely concentrated in rural communities. So ironically, um, white rural males in the United States without a college education are the most likely people to oppose any form of gun control. And they're the most likely people to purchase a gun. But what we don't seem to pay attention to is that they are overwhelmingly the most likely people to die from that gun at their own hands. Now, at the opposite end of the spectrum, we have young black urban males. And young black urban males are the people who are most likely to die from somebody else shooting them with a gun, all right? And in fact, I mean, you've probably seen these numbers. White men are six times as likely to die by suicide as other Americans. And on the other hand, black men are 17 times as likely to be killed with a gun fired by somebody else. So there's definitely a racial divide on guns in America. There is another group that has our undivided attention, and that is school children. It looks to me like that grabs our attention because, first of all, with the school children, it's just horrific. I mean, just the idea that a child would go into a school and find that they could be slaughtered just seems against everything that, that we want to believe about the world. We're troubled by the shooting that goes on in schools and in churches, places where we worship, and thirdly, in places of public entertainment where we might go to see a music venue or a theatrical performance. That makes us more likely to be afraid of a world that seems dangerous and honestly evil. One of the things we often hear when news breaks of, of horrific gun violence is what type of weapon was used. And particularly this year, the gun that's been front and center has been this AR-15 style rifle, which is a semi-automatic 
military grade rifle, which, for example, was used in the Uvalde shooting at the school in Texas. Does the type of gun that's being manufactured today play a role in how Americans should be thinking about gun regulations or not? What's your sense of that? Yes, I think that the type of gun um, should play a role. At the heart of the idea of a weapon like that is what it provides to the purchaser. So we've all heard the joke. You don't need that kind of a weapon to go deer hunting, right? So the question we really have to ask ourselves is, when a person goes into a store to purchase that weapon or to think about owning that weapon, what are some of the drives? I'm not saying this is all of it, but what are some of the drives that are going on or being fed by this? Now, if the ownership of a gun makes me feel more secure in a world where I feel more threatened and less powerful, and if the economic downturns that segments of the American population have experienced since 2008 has made them feel less powerful, then perhaps purchasing a gun is an antidote for that. And that is one feels um, stronger or more powerful. Now, whether one is actually stronger or more powerful is an entirely different question. That's important, I think, because first of all, the people who are marketing these guns send that message. And that is there is a kind of masculinity, a kind of strength, a kind of power that you will get from possessing a weapon that can mow down dozens or hundreds of people. You will be more like an action hero in a Marvel film than you are like a timid creature that you sometimes experience yourself as. Now, that's strikingly important for a Christian to think about. And that is, is there a piece of idolatry here going on that I believe that possessing a handgun will supply me with the strength and security that my reliance on God might have supplied me with in the past, or that my reliance on the community, or that will cover over or muffle for me my feeling of vulnerability, which comes with being a human being in the world. So in that sense, it's a dangerous theological issue to think that we can supply people with a godly-like power or strength if they have this kind of weapon. But secondly, a not unimportant question is, what kind of a god will I be like when I have that weapon? I may be like, you know, a god of thunder, but would I really be like um, the god that I claim to worship and Sunday Christian or Catholic services. After the break, what Catholic teaching says about guns and gun ownership. And we'll hear again from Archbishop Garcia Sierra on how his calls for stronger gun regulation in Texas are being received ahead of the midterm elections. So when Americans uh, go to the voting booth in November, they're voting for people. They're voting for representatives. So in light of all of these different groups of people who are impacted by gun violence, many Americans own guns or gun owners themselves. They hold very strong positions 
one way or the other or anywhere in between. But when we look at the key policy questions that are on the table in November of 2022, what should we be factoring in? I think one of the things that we should be looking for is a willingness to address some form of legislation that will limit or control the sale of guns or the placing of guns in homes in America. Now, the difficulty is I don't think that just saying I'm for or against gun control is going to be uh, useful for us. I think we have to push back with our politicians and ask us, what is it specifically that you're recommending for us to do? Now, what we do know is that states that have more rigorous uh, gun control policies, that is that people have to pass through you know, more tests or examinations to get their guns, we know that these states have lower gun death rates and that they have lower gun homicide rates and that they have lower gun suicide rates. We also know that these kinds of regulations work in other nations, and that is that limiting gun access works in other nations. Now, background checks can be an effective strategy for reducing people's access uh, to guns. Waiting periods can be an effective strategy. But also another effective strategy is I think that our politicians need to actively support research about gun violence in the country. And that is we, we had a significant period until 2019 where the Centers for Disease were forbidden for funding research in this area. And so we need to get our politicians to spend more money to find out what is the exact shape of gun violence in the country. I'd also like to suggest that other strategies like pushing for some form of gun ownership liability insurance. Uh, so for example, when you and I purchase an automobile, we have to pay insurance on that automobile in case we hurt somebody else with it. It's not an unreasonable idea to think that if I purchase a gun, that I would have some responsibility for harms or injuries or accidents or deaths that result from that. And that people who take very good care of the safety of their guns, make sure that they're locked in safes or that they're not stored with ammo or that they follow the, the best evidence for this, I think that that would be useful. I think we need to re-examine laws that were passed two decades ago that suggested that gun producers have limited or no liability for the use of their guns. We re-examined that question with the tobacco industry. We've re-examined that question with the opioid industry. I think it's a reasonable thing for us to do to re-examine that question with the gun manufacturers. The advantage of these strategies is that we're not directly attacking a concept which has become sacrosanct for a lot of Americans, and that is the so-called freedoms of the Second Amendment. In the wake of a, of a mass shooting or a horrific occasion of gun violence in the country, sometimes you'll hear politicians stand up and say, this was because of a mental health crisis. This is a, a lone wolf kind of thing. This one person is deranged, and that's why they committed this type of violence. On the other side, you have a lot of people who, when there's an egregious, especially an egregious act of gun violence, say, we need to repeal the Second Amendment, which guarantees a constitutional right to bear arms in the country. How do we sort of make sense of that? And how do we try to kind of bridge a gap between some of the, 
the polarization or the tensions or the different conflicting arguments that politicians make? I think one of the things we have to do, and you've asked this really nicely, is we have to avoid a zero-sum game here. Uh, We have to avoid the idea that one solution is absolutely right and the other one is absolutely wrong. Because in our current political debates, we tend to divide ourselves into reds and blues, into Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and progressives. I think we need to look at what is the common ground that we share on these issues. So for example, uh, a large number of Republicans and conservatives would support more legislation, particularly focused on background checks and providing more screening for mental health. I think it's also important for us to try to focus on the idea of how can we get more information to us about the issues. And that is, instead of framing the debate for between I'm against and I'm for, or, you know, I'm defending my freedom and I'm defending the lives of school children, I think we need to get to a place and go, look, this epidemic or this plague of gun violence in the United States affects different categories of people. How can we embrace a strategy of harm reduction? What would we do um, to reduce the homicide of black urban youth in the country? What strategies would be the most effective for dealing with that? And then what strategies would be effective for us in dealing with gun suicide? And that means I think we have to be much more pragmatic. We have to ask ourselves not which side we stand on the ideological divide on these issues, but what would actually work. The debate around guns tends to focus on individual rights right, as laid out in the Second Amendment. But the Catholic teaching on individual rights is that they never really exist in a vacuum, right? They're always connected to responsibilities, to neighbor, uh, and the common good. So when it comes to guns, explain that balance that the church tries to strike with those two principles. So the issue with gun, particularly with a gun owned by a citizen or a civilian, Uh, is a sign that the civilian has faith in himself or herself as an individual agent to solve the problems of crime or violence in the society. And Catholic teaching would not support that. Catholic teaching would say that the primary responsibility for addressing crime in the society belongs to the society, to the government, to the police, and that it does not primarily belong to the individual citizen. We do not live in a lawless society, and we ought not to behave as if we did. I think the Catholic Church would also say that the underlying causes of crime and violence in society are largely social and economic and human causes, and that the Catholic Church ought to be committed to building a more peaceful and just and sustainable society, and that we ought to be concerned about the common good and that a society that is armed with 400 million personal guns and that doesn't provide adequate health care for tens of millions of Americans or where millions of American children live in poverty is not a society that's adequately committed to the common good. So I think the Catholic teaching would tell us that we're trying to solve the problems facing us as a society with the wrong tools and we're placing too much faith in a set of tools that are not going to get us to the common good. So with all that in mind, if a Catholic is approaching the voting booth in November, what's the frame of mind or what are the key questions, principles, factors that they should be considering 
related to this issue of guns and gun violence currently in America? So when I go into the voting booth, I go in there as a citizen. So I need to ask myself, what policies and politicians ought I to support that would effectively reduce the level of gun violence in my society? And one of the ways I might answer that question is, I might look at the 50 states of the United States, and I might ask myself, which of those 50 states has relatively low levels of gun violence, and which of those states has high levels of gun violence? And I don't think I'm going far off the mark here when I suggest that the states that have effectively lowered their gun violence rates are not only the states that have fairly restrictive gun policies, but they're also the states that have the most adequate social safety nets in place. And that is, these are the states that tend to provide the best childhood education programs. These are the states that tend to provide the most adequate health care for persons. These are the states that tend to have the best defense for unionized labor. These are the states that tend to take the best care of air quality. I may not be paying attention uh, only or specifically to one particular uh, piece of gun legislation. I want to look at the network or the web or the weave of the laws that are in place in this community that adequately protect children and adults from gun violence and that lower that. Pat, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Sure. It was my pleasure. Thank you. At least 27 people have been killed after a gunman opened fire at a church in a small town near Lavernia. That shooting happened around 11.30 this morning at the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs. One of the top schools in the state. Parkland consistently voted one of the safest communities in America until today. It started around 2.30 Saturday afternoon in the parking lot of this Topps Friendly Market store in a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo. The alleged shooter wearing full body armor and tactical gear targeting people of color. To update you on the situation, if you're just now joining us, at least 14 dead, 50 injured after a lone gunman opens fire in a theater outside of Denver, Colorado in Aurora. On June 12, 2016, a gunman entered the LGBTQ plus nightclub and opened fire. The shooter killed 49 people. Here in Newtown, Connecticut, the site today of a mass shooting and this time gunfire aimed at elementary school children. Life has become cheap, like a thing. And like some people decide, or because of their craziness, or because their power, to eliminate life. And as I mentioned several times, I truly believe that if it's not in all the United States, I can say that here in Texas, arms are sacred. Why we distinguish ourselves by a gun? My God, that is idolatry. When I make something that is not sacred, sacred, and is expressed in the attachment that I have to it, my mind is about it, my heart is about it, arms 
might be needed in specific situations, of course, but we can live without them. And not because I have an arm, I am safe. And to believe that I am, I am making an arm an idol. And then, with the lack of training and responsibility, and with all the craziness of our world, to have arms available and those type of arms, you say that that, that is insane. That is totally opposed about being for life, respect life, honor life. Because how many people daily died because of shootings in the United States? Well, it's particularly bad in the United States. And, you know, Texas is a state that is pretty much synonymous with, you know, proud gun ownership um, and a prevalent gun culture. We know that. There are more than uh, a million registered weapons in Texas, which is nearly double that of the closest state. And 45% of Texans are gun owners. So you're looking at almost half of the population. And that's just slightly more than the national average. But considering what you just said, and in the aftermath of Evalde in particular, you become very outspoken in calling for stricter gun control. So in a state like Texas, which is the way it is, as I just described, how has that call been received? In many ways, I have received a good feedback, but I also I have received uh, or letters or emails or, or people in my office that they are not going to continue supporting the archdiocese. And, and even in some ways, a little bit like threats. We're not going to help anymore. The church has failed us. I'm curious, when you're having a conversation with people who feel very connected to guns, who have guns or who want to protect their guns and see a movement to restricting guns or to increase background checks or whatever as, as sort of threatening to that right that they have, which is in the Constitution. Have you found any methods that have been effective or or what do you say to those those people in order to try to keep a conversation going? Well, first of all, I will not start the conversation about that. But if the conversation emerges, I will bring going to Yuvalde. Why many people in Uvalde who are Texans and that they have guns, why even themselves now they are promoting more control of guns? Can you look at what happened to those families and why they are reacting that way? Are they crazy in their request? So it will be through experiences and through the values of the Catholic Church regarding social justice. The U.S. bishops, of which you are one, have been very concrete in their views on guns. You know, you collectively have been very strong advocates for reasonable gun regulation. Some of those things include a total ban on assault weapons, right, like the gun that was used in the Uvalde shooting, universal background checks, limitations on civilian access to high-capacity weapons and ammunition magazines, um, regulations and limitations on purchasing handguns in particular. So that's very concrete, but it doesn't seem that that position is very well known among Catholics or in the broader society. 
um, as, say, some of the church's teachings on other issues like abortion or immigration. Why do you think it is? Why do you think that the way the church talks about and advocates for gun regulation is not as well known as some of these other teachings? Well, I think the Conference of Bishops at different times has addressed the issue of gun violence. But again, is I think the political climate and specific groups of power control the dialogue. And so no matter how we say it, what happened in Uvalde, it was said so clearly what took place there in the world. And for someone to say, we could not change even a little the law regarding guns. I mean, but it's a control. It's a power control. You mentioned the, the political and lobbying power that controls the dialogue or controls a lot of the narrative around guns. So, you know, you as a pastor and an archbishop have an opportunity to say something directly to Catholic voters, not just in Texas and San Antonio, but across the country. So, you know, in, in light of that, um, what, what would you say? What do you say to individual Catholics who are trying to process this and factor this into the way that they are engaged politically? I will invite people to absorb in some way suffering caused by guns. And then to say, we are in the 21st century. Do we need to defend from each other with guns? Or being the first country in the world, one of them in development, we are going to the moon and to Mars and discover other universes. Cannot we bring quality to family life, to neighborhoods? to cities, why don't we show to one another in little ways here and there that we can live as human beings and respect human dignity? In your statement after the shooting in, in Uvalde, you said, and I'm quoting here, the, the Catholic Church consistently calls for the protection of all life. And these mass shootings are a most pressing life issue on which all in society must act, elected leaders and citizens alike. So I want to ask you, considering that for you, gun violence is such a pressing life issue, how are you approaching your own responsibility to vote in these midterm elections as a shepherd and pastor on the one hand, but also as a citizen and someone who's participating in the public life? So first, it's at the level of conscience when I vote. I need to be informed about the issues. Inform also about the candidates. And then to look at the reality where I am at. Then in freedom and involved in prayer based on what I know from Catholic education, the teaching of the church, that is wisdom that has been accumulated over 2,000 years, wisdom with humility to vote, knowing that no one of the two or three or four or five candidates, whatever the case may be, embodies completely the values of Christ.
next time on Voting Catholic. Life is the first issue. It's not the, the ultimate, it's not every human right, but it's the one without which the other rights become irrelevant. A sweeping, deeply consequential decision from the nation's highest court, ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade, rocking the foundations of more than five decades of legal precedent in our country. Does this law threaten doctors who have done nothing wrong, right? Do we make sure that it's focused? Does this law prevent women from getting access to medications that they need for purposes other than abortion? Does this law allow for an emergency situation to be treated as an emergency? In a post-Dobbs country, what does a just and moral abortion law look like? And how are Catholics approaching the issue of abortion as a voting issue in the November midterms? I actually believe that we should stay out of the political part of the pro-life movement. I think it's been used as a carrot long enough to get you to vote Democrat or Republican or what have you. For complete coverage of the 2022 midterm elections from America Media, visit americamagazine.org or click the link in the show notes. You can access all of our digital content and support the production of this podcast by becoming a digital subscriber. Voting Catholic is a production of America Media, a Jesuit ministry. This episode was written and produced by me and Maggie Van Dorn. Sound design and mixing by Ashley Spillane and Frank Tucson, with production assistance from Cristobal Spielman, Christopher Parker, and Jillian Rice. Art by Sean Tripoli and Allison Hamilton. Parts of it were recorded in the William J. Loeschert studio at America Media's headquarters in New York City. I'm your host and executive producer, Sebastian Gomes. Thanks for listening.